Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty. Businesses around the world have found ways to harness its potential, like spotting inventory shortages before they happen or supporting supply chain management. And it's very possible that your business could benefit from AI integration too. Unlock the potential of AI and discover even more possibilities with SAP Business AI. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil I. Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Jim Rowan, the CEO of Volvo Cars. Now, Jim's only been at Volvo for a short time. He took over in 2022 after a decades-long career in the consumer electronics industry. Before Volvo, his two longest stints were at BlackBerry, whose QNX software is used in tons of cars, and then at Dyson, which once tried and failed to make an electric car. Jim and I talked a lot about how that unique experience has influenced how he thinks about the transformational changes happening in the world of cars. For Volvo, the stakes are high. The company has pledged to be all electric by the end of the decade, and Jim is also making some very different bets on software and revenue than the rest of the car industry. Jim's view is that automakers are undergoing three major shifts all at once, electrification, autonomy, and direct-to-consumer sales. Most car makers are reacting to these shifts by aggressively integrating their hardware and software and trying to treat their cars like, well, smartphones. That doesn't just mean putting a big screen in the car. It means treating those screens and the apps that they run like platforms and trying to monetize those platforms with advertising, commerce, and subscription features, just like Apple and Google monetize iOS and Android. This shift is changing everything about cars, how they're designed and manufactured, how they're marketed and sold, and how they're supported and monetized for years after you buy one. Most car makers are trying to take those screens back from things like Apple CarPlay and create new recurring revenue lines. GM doesn't even support CarPlay anymore. And BMW has been the most aggressive about market testing subscriptions for things like heated seats, a test which did not go over very well. What's interesting is that Jim doesn't buy any of this. You'll hear him say Volvo is not interested in monetizing the experiences inside the car. He just doesn't think that any car maker's infotainment system will be able to actually compete with our smartphones. Instead, he's focused on building recurring revenue outside the car, with things like maintenance and insurance. It's a strikingly different approach to the auto industry, and honestly, it's kind of refreshing. Of course, it's Decoder, so we talked about Volvo's admittedly complex structure and how it works with sister company Polestar and its Chinese parent company, Geely. And I really wanted to know how he feels about the big picture in EV sales as prices fall and supply begins to outstrip demand. I also pushed on Volvo's big decision to use the Tesla charging plug like the rest of the industry, but it didn't seem like Jim wanted to talk about that very much. I did my best, though. One note before we start, Jim and I had a very confusing exchange about the operating systems inside Volvo vehicles. Briefly, Volvo is headed towards having its own operating system for the whole car called Volvo OS, but its infotainment system will run Android. That doesn't make it less confusing, and I will explain more when we get there. It's a ride. Okay, Jim Rowan, CEO of Volvo Cars. Here we go. Jim Rowan, you are the CEO of Volvo Cars. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. There is quite a lot going on in the car business right now, so I'm going to try to get it all in. But there's a lot going on in the car industry right now. It seems like a moment of intense change. Yeah, for sure. Lots of things going on at the same time. On one side, you have this huge transformation in terms of the technical transformation. But at the same time, you have a massive transformation on the commercial side. And then all of that is underpinned by this quest and this desire and the need to move towards a more sustainable future. So you get this, you know, almost triple-headed uh, change agent that sits right in front of us. And it's just, it's just super interesting. What's particularly interesting about that is you are a relatively new car CEO. A little over 18 months as the CEO of Volvo Cars. Before that, you were at BlackBerry, at Dyson, and you were the interim CEO at Ember, the, the mug company. How did you come to Volvo? You know, the attraction for me, I'm an engineer, and the the amount of technology that's been poured into the industry simultaneously 
just makes it for a really appealing place to be right now, just as, just simply as an engineer alone. So because you've got this massive transformation on electrical propulsion from internal combustion, that's that's one side. And although the industry talks a lot about electrification, it's really the easy part. That's the tip of the iceberg. The much more profound change that's happening in the industry is this move to core compute. And the move to core compute technology brings with it silicon and really being able to understand high computational silicon software of course and all its various strands of software be that embedded software or mission critical software or the application layer to your iphone then you've got connectivity inside the car Uh, then you've got 5g externally you've got cloud architecture you've got connectivity to the phone and, and the ios strand or android for that matter Uh, And then you've got data. And by data, I don't mean data capture. I mean data analytics, which, of course, is now going to be augmented by AI and and ML and machine learning. And that technological transformation with all those different strands is coming in at the same time. And it means that you don't have a choice. You don't say, oh, I'm I'm just going to really become really good at software or silicon. You've got to do all of this at the same time, as well as electrical propulsion. Uh, and that's what makes it both challenging, hugely interesting, uh, and at the same time profoundly demanding on on you know the industry as a, a, in general. That's really what what made me, you know, saddle up if you like and and get back on the horse to get uh, to get involved with Volvo. So we've had a few of your peers, CEOs of other car companies on the show. Broadly, what you're describing is car companies, especially traditional auto ma- manufacturers like Volvo had millions of suppliers. The suppliers would put whatever processors into their components. The car companies would assemble all those components. There would be some sort of canvas system or something like it, depending on the car manufacturer. But it was very basic. And then you had a car and you're off to the races. What you're describing is, okay, we're going to have one big computer in the car or maybe two, and that's going to run everything. And we've got to redesign the entire car around that kind of architecture, which some car makers have, have done, right? The new look car makers like Rivian or Tesla, they're way down this road. They've designed their companies around that idea. Where are you in the transition with Volvo? Because it that seems like a much more challenging transition than anyone expected. You're absolutely right. So it used to be that you would you would buy in these MCUs or ECUs, whatever you wish to call them, and they would be distributed 140, 150 of these small control units dotted around the car, you would buy those from tier one manufacturers. You had no choice what silicon they used. You had no relationship with those silicon manufacturers. You never knew whether it was a TI part or an or Infineon part or a Renaissance part. Um, and to make changes to that silicon, you had to then go through that tier one. The choice came when, when you could go to a system on chip and you had that computational power, you could go to a, a core compute architecture. And as you mentioned, some companies went there faster than others. Uh, and now some of the, let's call them heritage companies, are moving in that direction. We are pretty far along the road. The new EX90, which we announced a couple of, couple of months ago, um, that moves us much, much closer to a core compute architecture. And for the first time then, we've we've had to figure out that whole high computational silicon, the software stack, the connectivity, and bringing all that back into a co-compute architecture. And of course, it's, it's a challenge, but the benefits are, are absolutely huge if you can get that early mover advantage. You've got a bunch of EVs coming out over the next few years. I think Volvo is planning to be fully electric by 2030. There are some reports you've, you've got six more coming by 2026. Are you still on the transition? When do you think the transition to that core compute architecture will be done? Yep. So as I say, the first car comes out, the first core compute architecture comes out in the EX90. Uh, We'll start producing that car in the second quarter next year. And that's as we're off to the races. And from there on in, it will just be continuous improvement on that core compute architecture. As the silicon becomes more high computational, we'll be able to write more software code that allows us to get much more uh, benefit and performance from the car. And the car, you know, really starts to improve over time because we can do over-the-air updates with that new software. And that's really the profound change as well. It used to be when the car left the production centre, that was as good as the car was going to be. And now you're in an era where the car's going to continually improve over time 
provided that you have enough computational power in that car and provided that you have enough software that updates the performance and that you can do that over the air to make it seamless for the customer. It's usually a different uh, value proposition. This brings me to your background, which is largely in consumer electronics. Consumer electronics companies have relationships with their customer, particularly now, because every product is essentially a software product with a subscription fee attached to it. BlackBerry was deep into embedded operating systems. Dyson tried to make cars. It it didn't go so well. There's a lot of background there that seems connected to this moment. But the difference for me is that a car just can't fail, right? I use a lot of consumer electronics products with some very dodgy software updates sometimes. Those ideas seem incompatible to me in some fundamental way. We're going to change the car all the time. We're going to have updates. We're going to add new features. It's some rate which makes it seem like, okay, sometimes software has bugs, particularly for Volvo, which has a massive reputation for safety. How are you balancing the tension between speed and safety and reliability? There is no tension between it. First and foremost, it's absolutely essential that any updates that we give, especially if it's it's in relation to any of the, the, the core attributes of the car regards safety or performance, then we need to be rock solid that that, that software is, is going to work. And that really is the big difference, but I think, between the auto industry and other mission-critical industries like transportation in general, be that aviation or, or trains or so, you need to make sure that you understand the embedded software and that you've, you have enough protection in that and enough fail-safe in that that you, that you simply can't cause you know, a problem for the customer that's in any way um, life-threatening. That's why this is so difficult. That's why we spend so much time, so much energy, so much effort on making sure that the code that we write uh, works seamlessly, uh, especially on those safety circuits. There's a lot of general desire in the car industry to, to move toward this model where we think of these as consumer electronic products. I've, I've heard an infinite amount of car CEOs tell me that they want their cars to be thought of like iPhones. There is a tension there. You have a big background in consumer electronics. You've been on this job for a little over 18 months. Where, what has surprised you the most and where do you think the biggest tension there is? When I joined the industry, I was surprised actually by the lack of connection to the end customer. I mean, just think about that for a second. You sell a product which is 40, 50, 60, $70,000. In often cases, the single biggest purchase that many people make other than their home and you as an OEM have zero contact with that customer. You don't talk to the customer before the sale. You don't talk to the customer during the sale. You don't talk to the customer after the sale. Everything was done through the dealership network. Now, the dealership network play a huge part in the whole ecosystem, and they play a huge part and add tremendous value to our customers. And some customers want to research online, and then they want to go take a test drive from the dealership, and eventually they'll buy the car. Well, they may buy it online, they may buy it directly from the dealer. I don't care. I mean, as long as they buy a Volvo, I think that's, that's the main objective, right? And then, of course, they want to use the dealership for upgrades or for servicing. Fantastic. But we as Volvo need to be part of that conversation. We need to be involved in the conversation. So now rather than have a two-way conversation between the customer and the dealership, we now have a much richer conversation, which is between Volvo, the customer, and the dealership. More and more, we do that through the Volvo app. We use technology that's embedded within smartphones that allows our customers to engage directly with the product, directly with Volvo, directly with the dealership, and it makes it seamless. And that's really the, the big change, I think, that's come into the auto industry. You were obviously hired as the CEO of Volvo as a change agent. How far along has that change? Are we there yet? Have, have you had to change the culture of the company? What have you needed to do to make that real? We're on a big transition journey, technology-wise and also commercially. So direct-to-customer engagement and, and everything that goes with that, technology-wise and electrical propulsion and core compute and everything that goes with that as well. The third one is sustainability. So making sure not just that our cars are sustainable, but we're using sustainable materials in terms of recycled aluminium and all of our factories and our supply base, that they're complying to, to our desires to be a more sustainable company. And so those are the three big areas. In terms of culture, I think we already had a fantastic culture in the company. The thing which I think I've added, coming from consumer electronics, is I've added some pace and I've added a little bit of clock speed to getting things done. That's seven as well right now. So, you know, we've, we, in terms of the cultural aspects, we have less meetings. 
you know, we, we have less emails. We just get more <laughs> stuff done. We don't need to have endless meetings and endless emails on the same topic. Let's make a decision, make sure that's decision right, and then let's move to execution. So it's really Wait, been the, the execution can I ask you engine. a question? Sure. What is the difference in your mind between pace and clock speed? Well, pace is you just run faster. Clock speed is that when you're doing something repetitively, but you're doing it faster repetitively. So there's certain things within our company that we need to do and we just need to keep doing those things faster, whether that's cycles in terms of testing software or cycles in, t in terms of, 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 of developing hardware. That's the clock speed of getting certain things done that we know always need to get done. We just need to get faster and better at doing those things. And then you generally have pace. So, so for me, pace is like everything in the company. You know, because you look at Microsoft and it sets the meeting calendar for an hour, you can change that. You don't need to have every meeting that goes for an hour. So I, I can set it to 42 minutes. I can set it to 12 minutes. Um, you don't need to have 25 people on copy on every email just because it's kind of the polite thing to do. You know, we've really made, I think, a lot of headway now on just saying let's really add value in the limited time. It's not about making people work longer. Absolutely not. It's about making sure that people are adding the best value to the time that they spend within, you know, on their, on their daily uh, hours at, at work, if you will. I feel like I should add, how do you design your meetings to my list of decoder questions? Yeah. There's, a, there's a chance I'm going to do it after this conversation. <laughs> I love talking about it so much. But just, but just think about that meeting, right? So let's say people work 40 hours a week and you're saying, hey guys, we need to be 10% no more productive. If you, everybody can cut out four hours of meetings. Easy. Yeah. That's 10% right there. I mean, I'm gonna, without, I'm gonna, without even thinking about it. All right, Jim has challenged the entire Decoder audience. Today, I want you to look at your calendar and cut out four hours of meetings. Tell your boss that Jim said it was okay. They can email him if they need to. Uh, let's, let's get to those Decoder questions. I, I think about these a lot. You have a lot of decisions to make. You are, again, you're 18 months into being the CEO of Volvo during a time of immense change. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? So for me, it's pretty simple. I, I, I live by the mantra of none of us is smarter than all of us. We have a really good team of people here. We have subject matter expertise. Some decisions make themselves. You don't need to think about them too much. So you don't want to overthink those. But there's certain decisions where you need to bring in the diversity of thought. I mean, you really need to drill in and you need to become a pretty good listener and say, okay, what do you think and why do you think that? Then when you get enough decent content, then you can say, okay, I got it. We're going to go, we're going to go east, we're going to go west, we're going to go up, we're going to go down. But it really comes from that that having a core group of people that you trust and who have got sub subject matter expertise. You've come into a company, Volvo. It is a very complicated structure. It's owned by Geely. There's Volvo Cars, which is your part. There's Volvo Trucks. There's Polestar, which is sitting right next to Volvo, which is now a public company unto itself. We had Polestar CEO Thomas Ingelath on the show. He told This is a quote. He said, we're, we're moving out of our parents' house. We're growing up. How is Volvo structured? And how is the relationship to Geely and Polestar? Yeah, so let me decode that then a little bit to, uh, for the decoder audience. <laughs> so um, Volvo AB, which includes trucks, uh, construction equipment, Penta and so on, and Volvo cars are now two separate companies. So they separated and they both trade separately on the stock exchange if you're under different ticker codes. So that's an entirely separate company. We share the trademark with, uh, with Volvo, but other than that, that's really the engagement. Polestar, we own 48% of Polestar, so that's a deep engagement for us. They've gone, they despacked, and so they're now a public company, they trade on NASDAQ in the US. Uh, I sit on the board of Polestar, so I have access to, and Thomas and I speak frequently. Uh, and they're an investment that we've made in a company that we've now taken public. And they're getting ready for their next big phase of the journey, which is now they're going to have the Polestar 3 and the Polestar 4. Uh, that they'll bring into the market in the next six months. Both of those cars uh, I've driven, they're both great cars. And so it's nice to see Post, as Thomas said, you know, <laughs> they're, they're moving to the next phase. And then we have Geely. So Geely, we're a public company, so we trade on the uh, the stock exchange in Sweden, the NASDAQ exchange in Sweden. So we're actually a public company in our own right. And then we have high, high ownership, as you mentioned, by Geely. That's a symbiotic relationship in so much as we share platforms when we share some um, engineering uh, technology and they build their cars and we build our cars. Um, predominantly, Geely build for, obviously for the, the Chinese market, predominantly we build as a global car maker for the global market. So it's a very symbiotic relationship between Polestar, Geely and Volvo. Each of us have our own markets, each of us have our own cars 
and we share technology across the platforms, across all of those different car models, you know, similar to some other big auto companies do across their platforms. Geely is particularly interesting, right? They're a Chinese company. They're in China. The forefront of EV manufacturing, or at least the forefront of state-subsidized EV manufacturing is happening in China. Has that been a benefit to Volvo? Well, from the point that we share platforms with, with them, then of course there's a, there's a definite cost benefit uh, that, that, we, that we share technology. Of course, there's, there, there's definite benefits in that as well. But also the, the brands are very different. We're a premium car manufacturer. We play to that premium audience. We have our, so if you look at, say, Polestar, when, when they went on the, the D-SPAC, you know, their three words were pure progressive performance. That's, that's the marketplace that they aim for. And we are safe, sustainable, and family-centric or, or customer-centric. That's our marketplace. That's it, the, the customers that we aim to attract. I think there's room within the industry for people to have different customer bases and attack different demographics. And I think we've done that reasonably successfully. I'd say the thing about the Chinese car manufacturers as well have not quite gone to core compute architecture. So that will be the next phase for them as they develop that core compute architecture for that specific market. Right now, that's by and large, a lot of that is still done on the MCU or ECU architecture of, of, uh, of, you know, of the past, if you will. When you came into Volvo, you looked at the structure of the company itself, I imagine, as a new CEO. Most CEOs say, okay, I'm going to listen to everybody, and then they go about making some changes. How have you changed the structure of Volvo? Not that much, to be honest. We have an EMT, so we have a, an, an executive management team. We try and make sure that that uh, executive management team is really engaged in a long-term strategy for the business. Where do we need to take this business? You know, it's a public company, so of course we need to pay attention to the quarterly numbers. Of course we need to get tactical stuff done. But we also need to lift our eyes up a little bit and look out two, three, four, five years in the distance. The auto industry is kind of unique in so much as that you're making investments now that need to serve your needs four, five, six years now from uh, in the future. You're making investments in technology. To build a car manufacturing plant takes a long time. It's a big investment. So you're trying to look at the geopolitics and where you should build those factories to try and eliminate trades and trade tariffs. You're trying to say, where should I be building that, those technologies? Where am I going to sell those cars? And then you're making those decisions three or four years before it actually comes to fruition. So there's a, there's a huge amount of strategic thought that goes into uh, the long-term success story, if you will. And then at the same time, you've got a lot of tactical requirements that you need to get on with the day-to-day. -day. Got to keep the trains running on time. Got to make sure you hit your quarterly numbers. You've got to take cost out. You've got to bring in good talent. You've got to, you know, you've got to you know, make sure that you, you keep feeding that talent so they stay with you, so to speak. From a structural perspective, we have then a GMT, which is a, which is a group management team. That brings in the subject matter expertise. So within that room, then, you've got people from manufacturing, from supply chain, from procurement, from R&D, from software, from electronics. Everywhere is in that room, and we meet on a regular basis. We talk about the tactics, but we also talk about the, the strategy. So everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. And we do that with regular precision. And then, you know, we just go on with it. So that's been the changes, I think, has been not so much to the people, but certainly the way in which we work has become much more about, okay, this is what we need to get done long-term. Let's make sure we've got that in our sights. This is what we need to get done short-term. Let's make sure we execute on that this quarter or the next quarter. Uh, let's keep recycling that. So it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and make sure we just keep moving the, the company forward. And that goes back to the clock speed and pace piece that I mentioned earlier. We know we need to get done long-term, we know we need to get done short-term, and we need to get it done faster. You said something earlier that I've been, I've been thinking about as, as you gave this answer, which is that the electric propulsion side of this is not the hardest part. People know how to do it, they know how to put electric motors in a car. But Volvo, again, is an old-school ice manufacturer. Right? You've, you've made a lot of engines. You've got to wind down one part of your business and one set of expertise and bring up another, even if it's not the hardest thing you're doing. How does that play out in the structure? How does that play out in these tactics? Yeah, that's a super question because we were pretty early on uh, and, and I need to hand that to my predecessor for, for having the vision to do that. This is before I joined the company. A year or so before I joined the company, the decision and the strategic decision was made. We don't think that we can invest and, and keep going investments in internal combustion and really be serious about investing in EV to the extent that it needs to be invested in. So we took all of our ICE assets, all of our internal combustion assets in our factories, and we moved them into a new company. 
together with Geely. You know, that company is called Oral Bay. And then that became an external part to the company, which would then be, be self-funded. We still had access to that technology because we knew we would need internal combustion engines for a while yet, but we didn't want to have to invest in that. And that was a very strategic and and very clever choice and a very bold choice to make that early on in the transition race. And so that allowed us then to fully focus on BEV and electrical propulsion. So then we used to buy in our electric motors. We used to buy in our inverters. We brought that in-house. That became a a core part of our our DNA. And now we're doing a deal with uh, Northvolt in terms of batteries. So we'll, we'll have our own battery factory soon. So we really understand batteries and all of the nuances around um, battery manufacturing development. And then we write our own BMS or battery management software. So you pull that together now into a single propulsion uh, capability, batteries, motors, inverters, and battery software. Then you've got, I think, a building block that you're going to need if you're going to win this game in the future or at least be a big player. In that part of the company, that that's new, right? You, that's the one you're focused on that has to pay itself off as the company continues to invest in it. Absolutely. And that's the one that, you know, that's where we really want to make those investments. And we've saw that since we brought in those electric motors, just as an example, since we brought that in-house and applied our own expertise to that, and we can take a motor, we can test it, we can do that 10 times a day, we get that really, that again, back to that clock speed. If you're trying to increase the benefit of all these things need to work together. So the batteries, the motors, the inverters and the software obviously has to play to the car to make sure that the car's getting powered in the way it should be getting powered. When you have all of that technology in-house and you've built all of the test rigs, you can cycle that multiple times a day and you just keep making those improvements. So when since we brought that electrical propulsion in-house, we've made pretty meaningful improvements to the the efficiency of that particular part of the, the car. We have to take a quick break. When we're back, Jim and I discuss the best ways to market an electric vehicle. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. It's all over the internet. AI this, AI that. Your friend is turning his cat into a Monet painting. Your coworker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes. AI isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore, but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis. If you're a business owner, AI can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate. It might be time to check out SAP Business AI. SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology? Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com AI. We're back with Volvo CEO Jim Rowan to talk about which specs car makers should use to sell more electric cars. This is such a car nerd question, but you, you have a different perspective, so I'm very interested in, in how you're thinking about this. I'm a car nerd. I grew up reading car magazines. Ford and GM and Ferrari and whoever else, they were great at making engines, right, and making powerful engines with different characteristics and different kinds of transmissions. They were marketed on their specs, Right, they're they're marketed on numbers of cylinders or displacement or horsepower, the sound. I have yet to see any companies market their electric motor innovations in the same way. Right, there's not a direct connection between. All right, it's a gigantic American V8 engine, and we're going to market the technical capabilities of this engine the way that we used to with. Volvo is now making its own motors and it has its own inverters and we can market those directly because to some approximation, every electric car kind of drives the same, right? They all have Hmm. an incredible amount of low end torque and they're very quiet. And that is not the part of the experience that matters anymore. Have you thought about, you're a consumer electronics person. Have you thought about, okay, we've got to market the cars differently now because the, the drivetrain is no longer so differentiated. Yeah. I think if you look at say premiums, because we operate in the premium arena, but we all take a slightly different door to come into that premium arena. 
Some take the door of, as you say, performance. Some take the door of luxury and refinement. Some take the door of technology. And, and everybody has a little bit of everything. We take the door of, of safety, sustainability, and human-centric tech. That's what gets us in. And but the, so that's not the drivetrain anymore, right? Like, that's what I mean is yeah, yeah. But the but, idea but, that we're going to talk about the, how the car moves itself and that will be the thing that gets anyone excited. It seems to be almost over. Yeah, and I think it's much, if you used to be someone who differentiated your brand on performance, then I think that's much more difficult. We always differentiated brand on safety and sustainability mm -hmm. and, and the human-centricness and the family values of, of Volvo. So for us, the benefits that we see in our battery technology or the benefits that we see in our motors or an inverter technology manifests itself in the specs in a different way. It's like, how fast can you charge the car? How long is the range? Those are the things now which people care, I think, more about. Because as you say, you get torque for free in electrical propulsion. So what else? People really care about range. They care about cost, of course, and, and the cost of batteries versus ice. And they care about fast charging speeds. And, of course, safety. They want to make sure that the batteries are safe and that it's not going to cause them any problems, safe and reliable. So that plays well, I think, for us. Uh, we're always going to make sure that our battery technology is safe and reliable as well as the whole car itself. I do get your point in so much as I think it becomes much more difficult for maybe some of the other car manufacturers that have always branded themselves on performance or, as you say, um, turbocharging or top speeds or whatever. I think people really care about top speed, but no one ever, no one ever hits it. It's that torque that is, uh, is the performance and electric cars kind of get it for free. This brings me to Tesla. Tesla, obviously the poster child for the EV industry. They sell a vision of the future. They sell one personality in particular that has a vision for the future. It feels like the entire EV industry set its targets for sales and electrification based around what had been apparently perfectly elastic demand for Teslas. They were selling every single one they could make. The prices were going up. That seems to have come to an end, right? They're lowering prices. I'm seeing other EV makers with cars sitting on their lots Obviously, interest rates are very high. Do you think that that was a miss, that, that we misforecasted EV sales based on what was happening with Tesla? I mean, I can only answer for Volvo. We see that the demand for, for our cars, and maybe it's because we're fair and square in the, in the premium sector, but demand for our car has, has held up incredibly well. It's, it's been really robust globally, as well as across the whole portfolio. I don't see that. I mean, I understand the question completely because when you see high energy prices and high inflation, you think at some point consumer sentiment's going to change and you would see a soften off, not, not necessarily a soften off on, on BEV versus ICE, but maybe even a soften off in the whole industry because it's a big purchase. I think if you're just in the mass market, you're much more probably susceptible to that than if, in your, if you're in the premium market. Um, we actually don't see it. I keep an eye on that because it's something that I, I, I do think about. But I don't see any increased order cancellations. I don't see order intake slowing down. But remember, we're 1% of the total car market worldwide. So we don't play in the volume game that maybe some other people do. And maybe that's part of the protection as well. Having customers that shop in the premium sector that, that have a little bit more disposable income, that don't worry as much about inflation, and that really care about the brand attributes like safety and so on. So they're probably never going to compromise on that. I think maybe that gives us a little bit more protection, but I understand the question completely because you would think those headwinds that you would start to see consumer sentiment drop off. And you're seeing that maybe in some other industries, but we don't see it at Volvo, I'm glad to say. Do you still, you don't have the full range of EVs yet. That's to come. That's right. Is there a lower margin on the EVs you sell now compared to your ICE vehicles? Yeah, yeah. So we're the only car company, and to my understanding, is we're the only car company in the world that split out our BEV margins versus our total margins. When we were going electric, we wanted the markets, and we were going public, we were a company, we wanted the markets to really understand the, the journey and that it would be lower BEV margins than ICE to start with, but that we would start to pull that back. And we wanted to be able to show them from the start, this is the starting point, this is the building blocks to where we're going to get to ICE BEV parity in terms of gross margins, and we're going to take you on that journey and we're going to be transparent about it. And we've done that. And so now we signaled the, the new EX30. So our total margins for the whole company is about 19% in last quarter. And we've signaled that in the new EX30, we'll have, have uh, gross margins on that fully electric car of between 15 and 20%. So, I mean, that, that pretty much takes us into the, the sphere where there's very, very few companies that are making 15 plus percent gross margin on pure BEV. 
and that's because we're being able to focus fully on on that car and, and designing that car for the efficiencies that we're managed to, that we've managed to squeeze out of it. When do you think you'll come all the way back up to the thirty percent margins? It'll be incremental. Even if you look at the US, the US is moving really quickly now. Uh, East coast, west coast, the electrification we see that clearly. The interior's taking a little bit longer, as you can imagine. There's less infrastructure and there's longer distances to travel. The Inflation Reduction Act, I think, has been a great thing because it will, you know, electrify America to some extent because there's there's incentives now to invest in long range charge infrastructure or fast charge infrastructure. So hopefully over time we'll see the interior become more electrified as well. But we're in a great position because right now we're not a pure player BEV company. We're, we're heading towards becoming 100% BEV, but we have great ICE products and we have great mild hybrid and, and PHEV products or, or plug-in hybrid products. And where that makes sense and people really care about having you know the safety and the reliability of a Volvo, but they choose because of infrastructure or just personal choice, they want to have a plug-in electric hybrid, that's fine. We think over time as infrastructure becomes more and fast charging and battery technology develops, more and more people will convert to full BEV. But we're, great, we're in a great spot because we have all of those different technologies that we can offer our customers. The CEO of Toyota, I think this week or last week, said, look, it didn't happen as fast as everyone said it was. Plug-in hybrids are kind of the way to go. We were right. I mean, it, it was more or less the gist of the comments uh, during this last earnings cycle. Do you agree with that? Do you see that, that people are going to the plug-in hybrids and that that is a sweet spot? A lot of people thought that's what would happen and that would convert people into to battery customers over time, but it seems to be a little bit more binary. No, actually, we see we actually see a lot of people moving from ICE to plug-in hybrids and then from plug-in hybrids to BEVs. One other thing that we see a lot of people who start who went from, a let's say, an internal combustion engine to a plug-in hybrid then the next car that they buy, maybe a smaller car, maybe for their for their one of their kids, or or just maybe a second car for the home. Very often, that's a pure bev. They like the bev driving experience. That's going to be the car that they maybe use, you know, frequently around town, around the city. But they they still want the plug-in electric hybrid for the comfort of mind, if you like, for those longer drives. We definitely see PHEVs being a stepping stone towards full bev, at, at least in our customer base. You mentioned charging networks. This was the other thing that Tesla really had as a moat for a long time. People knew the supercharger network was reliable. It was fast. It was everywhere. The other charging networks, especially in the United States, nowhere near as good. That has recently changed, right? Volvo has signed on to use the Tesla connector here in the United States. What was that deal like? What are the terms of that arrangement? Yeah, not so much to get into the terms, but just the benefits, of course, the benefits to our customers. No, I, want, well, I want to know the terms. You know, everyone yeah, else well, did it. Ford went first and then everyone else followed. What was that conversation for you like? What was that decision like? I think the decision for us was like, we, we wanted to make sure that we could offer our customers the best experience and there was an opportunity to engage with Tesla charging infrastructure. We thought that was a good thing for our customers. I actually think it's a good thing for, for Bev adoption in general. Can't get into the terms of it, of course, but, um, but I think- Do you feel like it was a fair deal? Mm-hmm. You, you, there are some commercial terms, one assumes. Yeah, there's, there's, te- there's terms. I, I won't get dragged into any, any, anything further than that because uh, you'll get me in trouble. But, um, but basically... But you're yeah. the boss. Who's going to yell at you? <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But th- so there are terms. You had to negotiate a contract. Yeah, of course, there's certain terms and conditions that you need to, you need to adhere to, of course. But yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a great thing for us. I think it's a great thing for the customers. So on, on balance, when you're saying, okay, we're going to use your connector so we can get access to your charging network. Do you feel that charging networks in the United States will be competitive the way that gas stations are competitive? Or do you think we're all going to sort of converge on, on Tesla being the infrastructure provider? Well, I think you want to get to a standard. I think that's the main thing. I think you want to get to the, you know, if you look at standards across the, the world now, on pretty much everything, you start to veer towards certain standards. It used to be USB, now everybody's going to Type C is a good analogy to that. You know, this, you saw the same thing back in the 70s or 80s, whatever the hell it was, which was, uh, you know, VHS versus Betamax. Eventually, at some point in time, you pick a standard because nobody wants to be doing two different types of tapes or three different types of tapes. So you veer towards a standard and you look at the, you look at the technical benefits of the standards. But I think you'll still have different infrastructures and you'll probably have more than one, but I don't think you have a plethora of different standards. I just don't think it's helpful for the customers. Do you think that over time, the use of the Tesla network will help more people adopt EVs? 
I think so, yeah. There's a couple of friction factors towards full-scale BEV adoption. One is where can I charge and how fast can I charge? That Let's call that range anxiety for, you know, if you, if you put if you put a term on that. The other thing is battery cost and when can I buy a battery vehicle for the same price as, as a nice vehicle? And then the last thing is just is just change itself. People have been driving internal combustion engines for a long time. You alluded to airless. Some people really like that. They like the noise and the, the vibration and stuff. And, and so you're going to find when people go through that change curve of... Well, I'm going to have to change technology. I kind of like my ICE car to where can I charge? How fast can I charge? And, and can I get price parity? When all those friction factors are taken away, and remember, the next generation, they're going to start with an electric car in many cases. And so for them, those digital natives, as they were, the same with smartphones, they're very, very comfortable with that new technology from the get-go. As an engineer as well, I look at it and say, if you take an internal combustion engine, a really good internal combustion engine, you get roughly 35% efficiency from that engine, from the fuel that you put into the movement of the wheels that you get out. And you lose a lot on heat, you lose a lot on vibration, you lose a lot on noise. In an electrical propulsion system, you convert 90 to 93% in efficiency. You know, there's much less servicing costs because there's, there's much less moving parts. You don't get a blown overhead, overhead gasket. You don't get oil leaks. You don't get... You know, a lot of those parts, especially as motors develop more and more, are going to, are going to be, you know, very high in frequency between servicing, let's call it that. Mm-hmm. And so there's less servicing costs for the customers. And then there's zero, there's zero emissions. So less noise, less vibration, you know, less heat uh, transfer, less servicing costs for the customer and, and, and zero emissions for the planet. It, it becomes, just from an engineering perspective, it becomes a logical solution for the future. I mean... I'm sure if we looked 100 years ago, people were saying, I really love steam engines. They're really great. <laughs> uh, and then we went to petrol and now we're going to batteries. And I'm, I'm sure in another 20, 30, 40 years' times, there'll be another fantastic breakthrough technology that's even more efficient. But right now, I think we're in the age of the battery, uh, battery propulsion for, for a while yet. Do you think your battery production is, is sustainable right now? Obviously, battery production requires a, a, a lot of heavy manufacturing at this point. It can be quite wasteful. Are you on the curve to sustainable battery manufacturing? Yeah, it was one of the reasons why we did the deal with, with Northvolt because Northvolt, I think, have got, you know, we, here in Sweden, we, we, we're fortunate in that we have a huge amount of access to hydro. So that gives us a lot of green energy. Battery manufacturers, especially CAM and, P- and Precursor, can be quite heavy on electrical requirement because of the heat and the electrical requirement. So you, need, you really want to have access to affordable green energy. Uh, that's really, I think, what makes a big difference in the long run. We've got to take another break when we return a very confusing exchange with Jim Rowan about Volvo's relationship with Android. Support for Decoder comes from Green Chef. If you could make a single change in your life that made you feel better and got you performing at your highest level, you'd do it, right? That's what makes Green Chef such a no-brainer. The meal kits offer a ton of delicious options that make it easy to eat cleaner and feel better without spending hours in the kitchen. They'll deliver everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, tasty meals right to your doorstep with more than 80 meal options available every single week. Green Chef's menu is packed with farm-fresh ingredients you might not find elsewhere, like figs, artichokes, and sustainably sourced seafood. Plus, their menu now includes a ton of science-backed gut and brain health recipes, which were developed with dietitians to boost energy and immunity while improving digestion. Go to greenchef.com slash 60decoder and use code 60DECODER to get 60% off, plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com slash 60DECODER, and use code 60DECODER to get 60% off, plus 20% off your next two months. We're back with Volvo Car CEO Jim Rowan, and I'm sorry, but it's about to get very confusing. I basically just wanted to ask Jim about Volvo's relationship with Google, especially since the two companies co-developed the infotainment system in Volvo Cars. But as you'll hear, Jim and I couldn't quite get to the same understanding of what software runs what. And I think it's mostly because Google's names are so confusing. So before we get back into it, I'm just going to try and quickly explain all of the vocabulary here, because there's a shocking amount of it. All right, so you are probably familiar with Android Auto. That's Google's version of CarPlay. It just mirrors a smartphone onto the car's screen. Lots of cars have this. Most Volvos the past few years have an entire infotainment system co-developed with Google, which does not require a smartphone to use. 
It's based on Android and it has Google services like Maps and Google Assistant. And you can download apps like Spotify and so on from a version of the Google Play App Store. Various other car makers like GM are starting to do something like this now as well. Here's where it gets really confusing. The operating system Google makes for cars is called Android Automotive OS, or just Android Automotive. Not Android Auto, Android Automotive. Android Automotive is open source, and you don't need to sign up for those Google services to use it in a car. Stellantis, which owns Jeep and Dodge and so on, uses Android as the OS for its infotainment system, but it doesn't use Google services at all. It has its own maps and voice assistants and all the rest. If a car maker wants to run Android Automotive, and have all those Google apps like Maps and the Play Store, they have to sign up for something called GAS, or Google Automotive Services. GAS, get it? You'll hear Jim mention GAS directly when I asked about Android Automotive. The confusion is because GAS and Android Automotive are, in fact, different things. And the combination of Android Automotive and GAS is called, wait for it, Google built-in. I have no idea. I hope that helps you understand this next sequence of questions and answers. I'm not sure it helped me. I do know it helped me realize one very important thing. Google is terrible at naming things, and it makes it very hard to ask car CEOs smart questions about what is going on inside their cars. All right, back to my conversation with Jim Rowan. You mentioned young consumers, they're used to this technology. That's a little bit in tension with the propulsion is sort of the easy part. But the hard part is re-architecting the car. The hard part is figuring out, okay, what happens when you're in, inside a car now, especially as the cars become more autonomous. A lot of companies are choosing to be a little bit more reliant on Tesla for charging infrastructure. A lot of companies are choosing to be reliant on Google for the infotainment experience in the car. Volvo, perhaps more than anyone, right? It's just the car runs Android. That is an Android unit in your infotainment system. Polestar obviously uses the same kind of Android setup. How does that relationship with Google work? Well, it's not just Android. So we have our own base operating system. We have the Volvo mm -hmm. operating system. Android sits on top of that. So you have the Android Auto, which works well. A lot of customers really enjoy that experience. But we also have Apple CarPlay. And you can use the, the, the Volvo OS. So you've really got three choices. You can use the base Volvo OS if you want to go and, and, and just use that. If you want to use Android Auto, you can use that. If you want to use Apple CarPlay, you can use that. You know, one of the biggest things, I think, when you're, you're running a tech company or a company but that's- But that Android, Volvo OS is Android. No, Volvo OS no. is Volvo. And Android sits it's on top Volvo. of that. Yeah, yeah. And Android Auto sits on top of it. Yeah. I was under the impression that the Volvo OS was produced in partnership with Google and is Android. Or is that, has that significantly changed? No, it's producing, and it's Volvo do the, the Google operating system, Google auto services, GAS as it's called, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and then we, we write the base software for the car itself. Okay. And so you've, you've moved from the Volvo center stack that was in like the XC40 that I, I, I drove an XC40 recharge and that was very much Android in the center stack. And now you've moved over to the Google and the Google services portion of it. No, it was always, it was always, it's called, it's called GAS, uh, but mm -hmm. basically that's the Android stack that sits in auto, if you will. It's different, okay. it's slightly different from the Android stack that sits in your cell phone. I'm reading a press release from Volvo that says, we have joined forces with Google to bring the power of Android into our cars. The operating system is powered by Android. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. So we, the operating system, and, but you still have the base operating system of Volvo cars below that. Okay. More to the point, there's a relationship with Google that many, many, many car makers are taking, right? Beyond just Android Auto or, or CarPlay, where Google services are providing more and more yep. of the infotainment, of the mapping. Of, yep. Yeah, of we all do of that. that. And, and we do that as well, just to be clear. So we have that set. That's part of that service. That's part of GAS, if you will. Yep. Here's the question I always think about that's at the all the way at the end of the line. Eventually, these cars are going to drive themselves. To have a self driving car, you need to tell it where to go. And having Google Maps do that and be that layer is different than having you own that layer, right? The point of differentiation collapses to Google. You can get into any car and use Google Maps, and the car will go to that place. Do you worry about losing that point of differentiation? Not really. I think it's you're making customer benefit choices mm -hmm. for me. So when you've got such a big tech agenda and, you, and you've got so many investments to make, and there's two parts to that. One is dollars. Where are you going to spend your engineering dollars? And two is speed. Those are the two currencies that you really need to think about. So I'm constantly making decisions on what do we build versus what do we buy? 
in terms of silicon, I'll use the safety layer as an example. High computational silicon, you're going to need more and more and more high computational silicon that operates with better performance year over year over year over year. And that's a big investment. Some companies have chosen to invest in that and do their own silicon and SOC. We've chosen to partner up with NVIDIA and with Qualcomm. Qualcomm does the, the info stack and NVIDIA does the core compute. We think both of those companies are fantastic companies that really understand silicon and silicon development and silicon manufacture. So we don't feel we need to own that. We're going to buy that in, mm -hmm. uh, but we do want to write the software that connects the silicon to the application layer to make it easy. Let's just pick the safety layer. On the EX90, we've got 16 ultrasonics, we've got eight cameras, we've got five radar systems and a LiDAR system. Okay, we're writing the software stack that goes from the silicon to the application layer because we want to own that software so that we understand everything that's happening in that safety set, all the algorithms, all the sense of fusion software, all the perception software, what the car sees. You're turning yeah. the, the ones and zeros that the car sees into meaningful information that hopefully makes it a better driving experience and protects the driver and the passengers and even the people outside the car. So that was for us, that was a build decision. We're building that software. Um, we're buying the silicon, we're building the software. And we also buy in the sensor set. So we buy the cameras, we buy the, the LiDAR. We don't think that's our game. We think there's other people that can do that better than us. So just within the safety set, buying silicon, building software, buying the application layer. And some people have chosen to do all of that in between. Same goes for the infotainment stack, mm -hmm. where we're saying we want to have a base level of Volvo OS that we can sit on top of, but we also want to offer the choice of Android Auto or Apple CarPlay uh, so that they can then offer all the plethora of choices that they've got, whether that's the, the different apps that you can download into the car itself that sits on that center stack, or just the convenience of having your iPhone or your Android machine connect directly and seamlessly with the yeah. car. I don't really get off on the fact that I want a customer to say, hey, Volvo. If they say, hey, Google or hey, Siri, and, and you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet that, you know, <laughs> that have an iPhone or, a, or an Android, you got, you got to figure out where you want to spend your engineering dollars and what benefit that brings to the customer or the shareholders. I watch a lot of car reviews. I, I love them. The thing that jumps out to me is cars are turning into rolling screens and every car reviewer will like show you the the features of a car. I'm from, Doug DeMuro has been on the show, the quirks and features of a car. And then they get to the center stack, this huge real estate in the middle of the car. And they're like, and it runs CarPlay and Android Auto. And they just wave it off. There's something very dangerous to me for the car industry in that wave off, right? Here's all of this investment in infotainment systems and center stacks and connectivity the potential for your own app stores or recurring app rev anything that you might want, you need control of the interface. And every car reviewer knows that the customer is just going to mirror their iPhone onto that screen, or that's what the customer wants. How do you get people off of CarPlay and Android Auto? Or do you even want to at, at Volvo? I think you've got to pick your battles, right? Most people's lives these days are wrapped up in, in their smartphone, whatever choice they make, Android or Apple. You can either say, I'm going to provide a car that makes that a, a pleasurable, easy interface experience for you. Or you're going to have to have two choices. You're going to have a different operating system in the car to you have in your phone. And the, and the phone is in people's hands much more often than they sit in the car. The big difference is that you've got to be able to offer benefits through the application layer on the Android that's external to the car. Well, let me explain what I mean by that. So while you're sitting in the car, that's fine. You're using Android Auto. You're listening to, to your music or whatever, whatever you're doing. Fine. But what you really want the application layer to do with a, with a smartphone is when you're not in the car. Mm -hmm. When I'm sharing my digital key with my friend because he wants to pick up my car from the stadium that I left it last night or when I'm sharing my digital key with my, my kids or when I'm offering insurance services to the customer. Because I can see, because we have 16 cameras and we have ultrasonic sensors, we see the car dynamics. We see right now you buy insurance on the basis of what age you are and what your postcode is when, and when you had a last crash. That's, that's how they actually figure out what you should pay as a premium. Nothing to do with how safe a driver you are. Nothing. So other than the fact that you haven't had the crash for a long time. But we'll be able to see how good a driver you are, how close you drive to the car in front, how close you are to the cab, whether you really stop at the stop signs or you just slow down a little or all that kind of stuff. Of course, you can opt out on all of this stuff if you don't want to. But if you want dynamic insurance, for example, that's paid for by how safe a driver you are, and you want coaching, 
And we can say, hey, listen, you're a 45% driver. If you, if you leave another five metres between you and the car in front and you do this and you do that, your insurance premium will go down. That's a dynamic insurance premium. You don't pay it once a year. Take young people, young people, and even in the USA, but all over the world, it's hugely expensive for young people to get car insurance. Why? Because they're young. Not because, <laughs> not because they're bad drivers. Because somebody somewhere has decided they're going to be a bad driver because they're young and they're inexperienced. Then you see people at 17 winning Wimbledon or the US Open. You think, actually, you know what? It shouldn't just be about age. And so for me, that's a, a great example where you can have opt-in services on that Volvo app. In Sweden, for example, you need to change your tyres in the winter. I want to be sent a signal that says to me, hey, listen, we're coming up on tyre change season. It's next Thursday. Would you like us to come and change your tyre? We see where you park your car. Do you want us to come to your workplace, whip off the old tyres, put on the winter tyres and take those summer tyres away and store them for the next season? You're like, yeah, that sounds like a great <laughs> idea. I'll, I'll, I'm going to opt in on that. Would you like to hire a ski box for the ski season? Yeah, actually, I'm going to opt in on that. You know, would you like access to fast charging and not just in different chargers, but would you like us to be able to have it so that you you don't need to get out your car, you just need to plug it in and we've got everything on the VIN number of your car. So yeah. when it's raining and it's 11 o'clock at night, you just drive up, you plug it in and nothing else. You don't need to download an app or any of that stuff. All in a Volvo app. That's where I think there's a lot more value than us trying to own the centre console is to make a platform which is sticky enough to the customer when they say, oh, I used to drive a Volvo and I got insurance through that and they changed my tyres and I got a ski box and these guys yeah. really looked after me, free roadside assistance, um, great. This, this is fascinating, right? Because you are describing recurring revenue outside of the car, right? You're describing a bunch of services that car owners need, new, new tyres, accessories, insurance. A lot of your competitors are thinking very hard about recurring revenue inside the car. Yeah, and you know, I don't buy it, quite frankly. I think there's maybe a bit of inside revenue if you want to go to the upper levels of you know, of of, of certain performance. So you want to release X amount of performance in the car, you know, in terms of acceleration. Well, I'll just give you this specific right. example. BMW famously did the test with a subscription fee for heated seats. Yeah, yeah. So you are not you're not doing that. No, because, you know, I update my iPhone the whole time. I would be pretty peeved if every time I update my <laughs> iPhone, they gave me a bill. So I think well, every, but just to make the point clear, every time you conduct any transaction on your phone, Apple takes money out of it, right? That is their recurring revenue. Yeah, but they don't take it from me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but they do, right? I mean, there's a reason that iCloud storage is still very, very low, right? They are upselling you into the next tier of storage to make your phone work well. And you have competitors who really want that to happen inside the car. GM took CarPlay out of its cars because they want people to interact with their infotainment system. You think that's a not the right approach? I don't think that's the right approach. No, I absolutely don't. Uh, because I, I don't think that, that GM are ever going to have, you know, three and a half billion users that use a product every single day, two, three hundred times a day that they get really used to. And they want their car to basically be a simple, easy connection point to that car. So whether it's Android or whether it's Apple... Uh, or whether it's iOS, it's it's the same experience. And unless all of a sudden they're going to get into making s smartphones that are as competitive as the as Android and iOS, then I I don't personally think that's the best strategy. I think the better strategy is how do you add value for your customer, and adding value by saying, you know, inside the car, hey Volvo, rather than hey Google or hey Siri, I don't think adds value. You yeah. can still use the Volvo operating system. You still always have that. But if you want to use Apple or Android, you can use that as well. There is a report that the next version of, I, th I think it's the, the 90, the, e the EX90 or the EC90, will have the self-driving hardware built in, and that will be a subscription. Do you think that's appropriate? The EX90 will have LiDAR. So mm -hmm. we build our own ADAS stack. So ADAS and all the way up to AD. You know, AD is still quite a while off, in my opinion, but the benefits of ADAS will continue to come through as computational power increases and as the software becomes better. Then you'll be able to go at faster speeds and still do lane changing very safely and, and so on. We put LiDAR into our car. We put the LiDAR as a, as a standard in the EX90 because I like the LiDAR technology. We like the LiDAR technology. I know there's other companies that say you don't need it. But quite frankly, there's nothing else right now that can see 250 metres in pitch blackness 
And so that's the safety. And we're, you know, we're a safety conscious company. A lot of accidents, unfortunately, a lot of fatal and, and near fatal accidents happen at nighttime. And the reason for that is quite simply, visibility is much less. The roads mm -hmm. are actually quieter. So people are not paying as much attention. People are tired, maybe distracted. And those accidents happen when you least expect them. Because if you're driving 100 kilometers an hour, and all of a sudden you come across a deer or, or a, a fallen tree or something, you really don't have time to react. That's what the LiDAR system does. And so we're going to learn a huge amount from, from having those technologies in the car. The, the eight and you think, those are you, you think on the EX90 that will be a subscription fee? No, that's standard. Are you going to do any subscription fees for uh, driver assistance or self-driving? I don't know. We're, we're looking at that right now. I'm, I'm not relying on that in terms of a revenue stream. For us, I think you got to uh, you got to look at the underlying um, fundamentals of the business and say, can we have a profitable business based on this? There may be some revenue streams that come in uh, in the future, but I'm not relying on those revenue streams to build a profitable business. Where I do think there is much more opportunity is in those external services, but it's really clear. If you want your car cleaned once a week and you subscribe to a car cleaning service, you're going to come back and say, wow, these guys done a great job. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, whatever it was, that was 20 bucks. I'm going to double down on that. Or I really like the fact that these guys come and change my tires or I get great insurance coverage or whatever. Those are tangible benefits that I think people say that adds value to the relationship between us and our customers. Yeah. Um, and if there's, if there's subscription, if there's software subscription choices that does the same thing, we would, of course, go in that direction. Um, Let me pull this all the way out to the end, right? At some point, the cars will drive themselves. Everyone believes this. When do you think the cars will drive themselves? For me, it's going to, so that's going to roll out. It will roll out. It'll roll out. Full self-driving. No, full no self-driving. Yeah, full self-driving will roll out city by city, actually state by state in the USA, and it will roll out even then. In my opinion, this is at least, and it's, it's, it's my opinion, so it's, it's a sample size of one. But... Um, It'll start to roll out on known routes. So if you imagine downtown San Francisco to SFO on a certain route, full self-drive. You see that kind of pretty much already. Highway driving will be next because it's much easier to control. And that will happen in some countries much, much quicker than others. It'll happen in some states much quicker than others. Legislation will govern it state by state, country by country, region by region. But driving in the cities where you've got schools and kids and bikes and dogs, and that, that's going to take much, much longer, in my opinion. And do you, do you, I'm assuming Volvo has a higher threshold for safety. That's why we do our own mm -hmm. software. We don't want to rely on other people's software yeah. that, that is telling us what they think the camera sees. We want to make sure that we understand the software at, that, at the base code level so that we can continue to learn from it. The other thing is you, you get the data. If you use somebody else's software for that, for mm -hmm. ADS, you get no data. So we'll get the data. We'll have a million cars, two million cars, three million cars, sucking in data and saying, this is how we can make the car even safer or the performance better. And also the societal benefits. When you've got a car that's got eight cameras and a LiDAR system, we will be able to see where there's a pothole in the road. We'll be able to see if there's a broken stop sign. We'll be able to see if a, 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 you know, a crosswalk's not been painted properly. We'll be able to pick up those geo coordinates and we'll be able to send it to the local council and say, hey, listen, there's a big pothole right in the middle of this road that could cause an accident or there's a stop sign right outside a school that's been broken. You know, you guys should go think about fixing that. The societal benefits, the benefits to the customer and the benefits to the machine itself will all be helped by that, that data that, yeah. we, uh, that we can get access to through the camera set. So pull this all the way out to the end. You have built a self-driving system on some set of routes and some set of areas. They meet your safety characteristics. I get in the car, I push the button on Google Maps, the car takes off driving to go to SFO. I'm spending that time in the car on my phone, right? I'm no longer driving the car. I'm just going to, I know myself, I'm going to spend that time playing on my phone. I should meditate or look out the window. I'm going to play on my phone. A lot of car companies, I go to, I've gone to CES every year for a decade and car companies have told me they want to monetize that time. We're going to get to self-driving and then we're going to somehow monetize the, the time that the drivers take back in the car. This is not your strategy, right? You're, you're just happy to let people play on their phones in that time. Yeah, I think it's, well, you don't figure it out. I mean, it's a long way to go between now yeah. and then. But I think, but you're not you're not saying we're going to do Netflix in the car and we're going to take a, a rev share of the ads that people show Netflix. I have heard this plan from other car makers. We're going to fill the car with screens. You know, it's a movie theater on wheels, and then we'll have the same business model as a, a TV network inside the car. 
Yeah, that's not a strategy. No. Then you don't you don't see any particular merit to that. I don't think it's a viable strategy. I think we're going to stick to what we're really good at, and that is building really good, safe cars with fantastic connectivity experience for our customers that allows them to enjoy the benefits when we get to full AD of whatever they want to do with that time that they've gained. Let me ask you uh, just a last question here, and I think maybe my most important question. You've talked a lot about safety. That is obviously Volvo's legacy. That is obviously Volvo's brand at, at its core. You are shifting the brand from sedans and station wagons, Volvo was very famous for station wagons for a long time, to SUVs, right? Crossovers, SUVs. Those cars, especially in the United States market, keep getting bigger. They keep getting more dangerous for the people around the cars, pedestrians, children. There is a little bit of a movement in this country to go back the other way. You see a little glimmers of demand for smaller cars, for smaller pickup trucks even. Do you think that pendulum will swing back, that we'll make safer cars by making them smaller again? I think what you'll see is younger demographic want a smaller car. They don't have kids, don't have dogs, they don't, you know, they don't have the same lifestyle needs of a big car. So the EX30, which we did, is a small, is a small SUV. It's still an SUV, but it's the smallest SUV we've ever done. The demand for that car and the pre-orders for that car are super higher than we and we, we actually set ourselves a target and we've overshot that target. And I think that's a great city car. So I think you're gonna see people who are in the city drive certainly younger demographic as well. It's more affordable, it's smaller, it suits their lifestyle. Then I think you're going to see a lot more smaller SUVs in the cities, even in the USA. And then, you know, outside the cities, I still think you're going to see the demand for bigger cars. And so for us, the EX30, we have the 40, we have right now the XC60 and we have the 90. We kind of cover all of that spectrum right now. Uh, I do agree that I think smaller cars, uh, especially in the SUV format, and the cities are going to become more prevalent. Well, James, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining Decoder. You bet. Take care. Have a great day. I'd like to thank Volvo CEO Jim Rowan for taking the time to join Decoder. And I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We're planning on bringing you more episodes of Decoder every week very soon. And I'd love to hear what you want us to do more of. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I really do read every email. Or you can hit me up on threads. I'm at reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. It's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Imagine the most tedious task you have at work. Is it making all those manual adjustments to your weekly spending reports? Or sending essentially the same emails over and over again? If you're looking for ways to innovate your business, it might be time to consider SAP Business AI. With dozens of potential integrations to optimize sales, procurement, finance, human resources, and more, SAP Business AI may be able to improve your business operations inside and out. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.